The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15. While you're turning there, let me just say a word of appreciation again to Hannah um, for stepping in and leading us when Ethan's gone. And um, I'm so appreciative. I don't know if, if you have watched Hannah as she's been here. She started coming here as a North Greenville student. She's since graduated. She's, she's working uh, on her uh, postgraduate degree, and, and she is here serving the Lord. You can see the Spirit of the Lord just exude from her. Uh, she teaches our kids on Sunday mornings. Uh, my daughter has been one that has been uh, the beneficiary of seeing this godly young woman kind of live her life in front of her. And so I'm so appreciative of Hannah. Uh, my family, when we went to the beach this last summer on vacation, we were able to go to her church. Uh, she's from the Myrtle Beach area, and uh, it's so good to have her up here with us. So thank you, Hannah. First Corinthians 15 is where we'll be, and this sermon I've entitled, One Day Death Will Die. One day, death will die. We have been, over the last two weeks, uh, this is our third week in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, over the last two weeks we've been studying the resurrection. And not just the resurrection of Christ, but also the resurrection of the dead. All believers, all who follow Christ. And in a day where many would tell us that we are uh, foolishly following a dead Savior, We say no. We know that he lives, and we also say because he lives, we also will live. And so I'm hoping to prepare you in this uh, to to know how to respond to people who think that we are foolish in following this Christ, but also to give you great hope. Over the past couple of weeks, two weeks ago, we looked in verses 1 through 11 at how the resurrection of Christ is necessary for us, that unless he's raised from the dead... We're still in our sins. We're not forgiven, that we need his resurrection for forgiveness. Romans 4.25 tells us that. Not only that, but his resurrection is what gives us the power to live holy lives that he calls us to. That we wouldn't be able to walk in holiness if it weren't for his life living in us. And that his resurrection also means that one day we have hope of heaven That one day we will be fit for heaven because he has gone away in a resurrected body to prepare a place for us. And one day we too will be raised, not just there in spirit, as disembodied spirits, but we will be there as bodies and spirits transformed and fit for eternity of worship to our King. Last week we went beyond the the resurrection of Christ, and we began to look at those in the church in Corinth who were saying there is no resurrection of the dead at all. And Paul lays out a case of these six different things that would not be true, that, that would be true if they were right. That if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ himself has not been raised. Then their preaching and our preaching is in vain. It's powerless. But you know if you're sitting here as a believer... That somewhere along the way you heard the gospel and you heard and felt the call of Christ when he made you alive to come follow him. They did too. And Paul says if, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then the whole message is a lie. That your faith is in vain. 
that the faith of all those who have already perished believing in Christ, their faith was in vain. They're in hell. And that we, if there is no resurrection of the dead, are the most pitiful people on the planet. And today, we're going to go a little deeper and we're going to look at the bigger picture of the resurrection. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration here and I'm probably going to, it, it may stretch you a little bit and I may shoot myself in the foot for giving you this illustration, but sometimes we look at the Bible as Christians the same way we do often at the way we look at Krispy Kreme. You know Krispy Kreme? How many of you like Krispy Kreme? How many of you are Dunkin' Donut fans? Y'all don't know what you're talking about. Krispy Kreme is the way to go. But sometimes we as believers look at the Bible like we look at Krispy Kreme. We go to the store, and what's the first thing you do? You go to the case. And you go to the case, and you look inside, and you say, hmm, what's in there for me? Right? Do you know that at Krispy Kreme there's a whole other process that's going on? Next time you go into Krispy Kreme, go around to the side and go to that window and watch the process that goes into bringing those donuts to the case. You can watch this thing. and There's this tube that, that squirts the, the dough, the batter, into the hot oil. And then there's this thing that somewhere along the way flips them so that they don't get too done on one side. And then there's this conveyor belt that runs them out and allows them to cool just a little bit right before they go under that cascading waterfall of sugary goodness. <laughs> There's even this little guy that's standing there with a stick. And he takes that stick, and as they come around the conveyor belt, he plucks those things off before he puts them in your box. And he never moves fast enough, does he? Now today, I, I fully expect to see many of us together at Krispy Kreme. Right? We'll all go there now since you're craving it. But isn't this the way that we sometimes look at the Bible? We come to the Bible and we say, hmm, what's in there for me? Instead of looking at the big picture and seeing that there's a God who's sovereign, who's doing something that is beyond just me. That there's a whole process behind it. That God is up to something. That, that just because we look at this world and we think something's wrong, and there is something wrong, it doesn't mean that God has lost control and that he's quit what he started, that he's given up on things. No, in fact, God will finish what he started. And what I want you to see today, what Paul wants us to see in 1 Corinthians 15, is that God has set in motion through the resurrection of Christ a process that will not stop until it achieves its ultimate end. God is doing something bigger. And I want us to see this bigger picture of the resurrection. That there is something more than just what's in the case for me. There's something bigger at stake, and God is going to pull it off. Let's look at this text together. I'm going to begin reading in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 20. And we're going to read 20 through 34. I'm, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I probably won't get all the way through 34 today. But I'm going to get as far as I can. So let's read this together. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. And Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ... 
Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and, and power. For he must, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to, to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, he says in 29, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Let's pray together that God would enlighten us on this passage. Lord, I pray that you would teach us today from this. God, that you would show us the truth that's here. And God, I pray that I would not get beyond the text. God, that I would not rush through the text. That those who are sitting out there in the seats today, God, that that they would not be tempted to want to rush through the text. But God, help us to come to your word today. And God, that we would savor it. God, that we would enjoy every morsel of it. God, we need your word. So God, speak to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I probably won't get to 29 through 34. When I read that, some of you said, whoa, what's that about being baptized for the dead? I won't get there probably, but I promise you, I'm not going to avoid that. I'm going to come back to it next week if I don't get to it today. But today I'm going to concentrate in 20 through 28, and I want to show you really two things this morning out of this text. Why was God raised? What was the bigger picture? Well, number one is this. God raised Christ to reverse the curse. God raised Christ to reverse the curse. In verse 20 when he says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That first fruits, that word, is the, 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 the key word in this verse. We think of this, if you've had any background in church at all, we think of, of the word first fruits, and we immediately connect it to the tithe or to offering. And, and, and rightly so. In the Old Testament, they were encouraged to, in fact, commanded to take off the top of their crop or whatever would come their way and give the first fruits bring it to the temple and give to God as an expression of saying thank you for his provision and also it was an expression of saying I trust you to provide for me in the future. And we as a church would would also commend that to you. We would say to you, I would say to you as the pastor of this church that one of the ways that you worship God is to say with with all the stuff that he gives to you, money, your house, your cars, your job, your kids, all of the stuff that comes into your life, I would encourage you to give off the top to, to God in that. 
that you would take from immediately when you get your paycheck and you would take from that and you would come off the top before any of your bills are paid and give to God. Why? Because I want a bigger salary? No. Because I know that it's in that place where you are tempted the most, many of you, to not worship God. It becomes easy to come in here. I'm getting way off topic, but it becomes easy to come in here and put on the clothes and get up and show up and to sing and to bring your Bible and open and and even participate in discussion. But there's something that that happens when you begin to take what God's given you and and give out of that, not knowing if, if things are going to work out, if your bills are going to be met. And trust God. There's something that happens there that that is a beautiful expression of love to a God who is altogether worthy and who will provide, who will not let you go hungry, who will not let you go without shelter or clothing. He may not give you everything you need, but he will provide. So when we read this passage today and we read that Christ is the first fruits of all who have fallen asleep, we immediately put it in that context of giving and the offering and tithe. It's really not that at all here. In fact, it's, it's meant in another way. Paul's meaning here when he says first fruits is a practice that they, they would do. Farmers and, and the agricultural people of the day would do. They would be, when, a, when a harvest was beginning to come in, and it wasn't quite time for harvest, but when it was beginning to come in, they would go and they would take a first sample of the crop as an indicator of what the rest of the crop might look like. And some of you who have any background in farming or, 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 or agriculture at all, you know this to be the case. You will watch your crop through the year, and as it begins to bud and, and come to, to fruition, you'll go out and you'll check this. And what he's saying here is not that Christ was an offering off the top, but that Christ, because he was raised from the dead, it is an indicator of what the rest of the crop will be like. That we who also believe in Christ because Christ was raised and we come to the sample of the crop and we say he was raised. It's going to be a good crop. All the rest of us who follow will also be raised. Verses 21 and 22, he goes on and he takes this a little deeper and he goes away from from the first fruits metaphor and he goes to this issue of Adam and Christ. In verses 21 and 22, he says, For as by a man came death, by a man also has come resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, he's not saying here that universally all human beings will be raised from the dead to enjoy heaven forever. You take it out of the context, you could make it say that. What he's saying is those who are believing in Christ, those who are truly his, will be raised from the dead to live with him forever. We come to this and we say, what is Paul saying here when he's talking about Adam and Christ? Well, nobody questions that everyone will die. Go and have a conversation at work this week. And just ask somebody, say, you think you're going to die one day? You'll be hard-pressed to come across anybody in your workplace or the gym or anywhere who will say, nope, I think I'm going to be kind of the first to just never die. I think I'm just going to live on forever. You know, there have been people that have tried it through medicine and science and tried to, tried to put themselves on machines that they would live forever. But no one really thinks that they're really going to just naturally live on forever. They all assume they're going to die. 
And we as Christians know that the Bible tells us the reason for that. That the reason death is universal, that 100% of people die, is because it's rooted in Adam. When Adam sinned in the garden, he ushered death into the human existence. And we don't have any problem looking at that and saying, Adam represents all of us. And because we are all descendants of Adam, now thousands of years later, we still buy this, that all of us are going to die because we're descended from Adam. What Paul's saying, though, is that when Christ comes as a man, as fully God, but also fully man, and he dies, but then he is raised again, that he reverses the curse. That now the curse in Adam that everyone would die stops in its tracks and begins to spin backwards. Christ is the first man ever who died but was raised. Now you say, but wait a minute, there were others in the Bible that were raised. What about Lazarus for one? What about, um, what about Dorcas and what about the daughter of Jairus. And what about Eutychus? The, remember Eutychus, the young man who fell from the window when Paul was preaching through the night? He fell down dead in the street. And Paul was able to go down and raise him from the dead. He said, what about those people? Jesus was not the only one who's ever been raised from the dead. You're right. But all of those people were raised to die again. After they were raised, there was a funeral again. Lazarus. Mary and Martha, they were there and they wept at his tomb. And when Jesus finally showed up, they jumped all over him. Jesus, where were you? If you'd have been here, you could have saved him. Jesus calls him out of the tomb and they rejoice. But there was a moment later on when Lazarus died again. But only Jesus has come out of the grave never to go back in. There's no other leader, there's no other person in history who's ever done that. And what we should see, what Paul wants us to see here, is because Adam represents and gives to the rest of his descendants death because we who trust in Christ, Jesus reverses the curse and gives to all of us life. Not just life spiritually, but life as bodily that we will be raised. John 1, 12-13 says, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The reason I read that to you is because up till that point, we were children of man. We were children of the will of the flesh. But when Christ comes and we, by faith, turn from our sin and put our trust in Jesus alone, we become no longer children of men, but children of God. And he reverses the curse. And Jesus dies to do that, um, to reverse the curse. But you say, but wait, if, if Jesus has reversed the curse, then why do believers still die? I mean, when, when Adam sinned in the garden the curse was ushered in immediately. I mean, people began to die, maybe not on the spot, but it doesn't take very far as you read through Genesis to where we see people begin to die. Cain and Abel, first murder in Scripture, and we see them begin to die. Death comes swiftly. So now if you're telling me that Jesus died but was raised to reverse the curse, how come the 
reversal? How come bodily resurrection doesn't come just as swiftly? Well, that's the second point that I want you to see. Not only has Jesus come to reverse the curse, but I want to show you that God has raised Christ also to reign. To reign, to be the rightful ruler. Look at verses 23 through 28. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the, the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. I want to show you some things in that, because that passage, I've read it to you twice now, that passage tends to get confusing. Particularly verses 27 and 28, when it talks about the one who has subjected, is accepted, and all of that. It gets kind of confusing, but I want to show you the main point of these verses is the rulership, the rightful reign of God. First off, Christ is presently reigning. You say, well, when does, when does his reign start? Some people believe, they look at Christianity and they look at the world and, and they hear Christians talk about the reign of Christ, that, that he is king of kings, and they, they simply assume that his reign must not, must not have started yet. That it will only start whenever he comes again and he then ushers in this kingdom. But the reality is this passage teaches us that Christ is reigning right now. That there is no weight in this. That Look at verse 25. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The implication is that he is reigning right now. Sometimes we look at the events of the world and we wonder how that could be. We look out at the world and we see things like... Children starving. We, we see things like wives being abused. Disease that wipes out an entire generation. You, you look at some of the places in Africa and you see how AIDS has just destroyed a generation and left, left, left a, a wake of orphans. We look at that and we say, Christ reigning now? You, are you really serious? We look at things like evil men oppressing an entire nation. And hiding behind boys who are taking up guns to fight for them. We, we look at things like earthquakes and tsunamis and hurricanes that level cities and kill thousands of people. We look at young girls who are kidnapped and forced into prostitution around the world. And we see these things and we think, I don't know how it's possible for you to say that Jesus is now reigning when these things are going on. If he's reigning, then why doesn't he do something about this? But I also know that, yes, these things do bother us, but, but I also know human nature well enough to know that maybe these things are not the things that bother you the most. Because these are the things that don't really ever touch you personally. But what about the things that do touch you personally? What about the report from the doctor that says it, it is indeed cancer? What about when they can't find the baby's heartbeat? Pregnancy had been going so well up to this point, and everything seemed to be progressing so well, and things were going so good, and 
you had bought all the things for the nursery and you were so ready to bring this child home and you go to one of your last visits and they can't find the baby's heartbeat only to find out that the baby has died in the womb. What about your ongoing battle with pornography? This struggle that you tell yourself time and time again, I'm not going to look at that stuff again. I'm going to turn away from this stuff. I'm going to get rid of this altogether only to find yourself going back to it again. What about your obsession with food? You tell yourself, I've got to quit. I'm ruining my health. I'm not going to do this anymore. And then you run right back to Krispy Kreme because your pastor used it as an illustration. What about the control of your tongue? You say, I'm not going to talk about my coworkers anymore. I'm not going to participate in gossip or I'm not going to lie. What about your temper with your wife and your kids? You know how you feel when you get angry and you yell. And you come in in here and you sit in this place and you hear this preacher stand before you and say that right now Christ is reigning at this moment and you want to scream at me, stand up and scream at me and say, oh yeah? Then why these things? Some of you have come to the point where you don't think there's any power left that can ever give you victory over these things, that can ever conquer these things in your life. And some of you at this moment have given up, but I have good news for you. Whether you agree with me or not, I have good news for you. Jesus is reigning right now. It's not a will be. It's he is. Oh, he forever will be, but he also is right now. Believe it, you're not alone in your struggle. Christian, you are not helpless in your situation. There is nothing, let me just tell you this, there is nothing that can have the last word in your life unless God decrees it. Do you understand that? When you sit in front of that computer screen for the thousandth time after you've told yourself 999 times that you would not go back there, God's reigning. And the problem is, you've come to this place where you think you reign. And you think in your own strength that you can come to this place and say, I'm not going to do it anymore. And you're not saying, God, reign over me. The reality is when you're back in front of that computer screen again, it simply should drive you back to the gospel. It should drive you back, not in a way that you need to be saved again because you have fallen and lost your salvation because the Bible never teaches that that those who have truly been saved can lose salvation. The Bible never teaches that. In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite, that those who truly have been saved are His and He holds them. But instead, you would come back to the gospel and say, Jesus, I still need your grace. Jesus, I'm still struggling with a sin in my life and I can't do this. God, would you forgive me and give me power to live for you? And every time it should draw you back, take you back to the gospel, there is nothing that can have the last word in your life unless God decrees it. Also, there's nothing that can come into your life, that can invade your life without first having to ask the sovereign 
ruler who is Christ. And if it comes into your life, you can mark it down that it has come from a God who loves you more than you love yourself, who is reigning, who is altogether good, who has determined that this, whatever this is, is necessary for you to be sanctified and made like Christ. That's why we can say all things are good. God is good in all these things. There's another way that he's presently reigning. He's not, he's not simply reigning in this way that is, that is this personal helping you through, but he's also reigning in the world today by continuing to conquer people of every nation, tribe, and tongue. That just as the gospel one day came to you and you became alive when you heard it because the Spirit moved over you and you heard the gospel and responded in faith, so also Jesus is reigning as sovereign when the gospel is going to new places every day. By continuing to conquer hearts for His glory. His conquering is not like the conquering of others. He doesn't come to to rob from you and and pillage you and to, to imprison you, but instead He comes to give you life and to set you free so that you might follow Him with a true heart. Maybe some of you are here and you've seen this happen in the life of a friend of yours and you're here today because you've seen something in them and you can't explain it. These are the very people who used to run with you and do the things that you did. And you thought that it would always be this way. But one day they came to you and they began to talk about this Jesus. They began to talk about this church that they were going to. They began to talk about the Bible. And all of a sudden, the things that they used to want to do and the sin that they used to want to enter into with you began to go away. And their life was changed and different. It made you angry. And you mocked them and you ridiculed them. But they wouldn't turn back from where they were going. It's reached a point where you're sitting in here today wondering, what happened? How do I explain this? What's happened to my friend? My friend wanted me to come today and seen such a change in him. I just wanted to come and see him. Still skeptical. I don't believe any of this stuff, but, but I just wanted to come and see what this was all about. Let me tell you something. What that is all about, what you've seen in your friend or, or your father or mother or brother or uncle or whoever it is, what you've seen in them is the reigning power of the risen Christ who has conquered their heart for His glory. And you too can be conquered by turning from your sin and trusting Him alone. He'll make you alive. He'll bring forgiveness to you. He'll make you right with God and He'll give you purpose in your life as you live for Him. He'll fill the emptiness that's there. You will find hope and fulfillment and peace that you have been searching for for so long. It may not be that you will find all that you ever wanted, but there will be a joy that can never be robbed from you when the King conquers your heart. Not only is He presently reigning, but He is also working to secure His eternal reign. This is what Paul is saying in 24 through 26. I won't read it all again because that would be the third time I've read it to you, but I'll just... Quote the section I want you to hear. Until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Jesus is presently reigning. And he's going to reign until every single enemy, every single power, every single dominion is under his feet. That he's standing on top of them, having crushed them under the weight of his power and glory. That he is not passive in his reign at this moment. 
That he is actively working to put all his enemies under his feet. God will not stop until the graves of those who have believed erupt and spew out their bodies. Gordon Fee says it this way, as long as people die, God's own sovereign purposes are not yet fully realized. Hence the necessity of the resurrection so as to destroy death by robbing it of its store of those who do not belong to it because they belong to Christ. Christ will thus have brought Satan's tyranny to its conclusion. I love that imagery there that those graves across the road who are holding the bodies of those who have already died, who believed and trusted in Christ, that one day God's work will finally be finished and those graves will spit those bodies out because they don't belong there. Right now, it's a reminder to us that we still live in this fallen world where Satan still has this seeming tyranny in this area. That death still reigns, but one day it will all come to an end and death will die. And God's not going to stop. Christ will not stop until that day comes. And here's the second part of the big picture. If the first part of the big picture is, is that Jesus died and was raised, that God raised him from the, from the dead to reverse the curse, to defeat death once and for all. The second part of the big picture is this, so that God will be all in all. That's what it says there in verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. This is the point when I tell you to go to Krispy Kreme and don't go to the case first, but go around to the window to see what's going on, all that goes in. This is that window. I want you to see it. The point of the resurrection and the point of Jesus coming to die for forgiveness for sins is not just you. It is part of that. We know this. John 3.16, God so loved the world. He so loved you that he gave his only son And whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. We we know that we are the beneficiaries of this, but ultimately the grand purpose is that we might see God as all in all. That the worship of God would be universal. When, When death is dead, the last rupture of the universe will be healed and God will rule over every square inch of it. Don't you long for that day? Don't you long when you struggle with sin no more? When there's no more bad reports from the doctor? There are no more car accidents? I mean, none of it. It will be gone because God will rule and reign over every square inch. As he presently reigns, he's reigning from a position of grace with his arms open wide, ready to receive all who would turn from their sin and trust in him. But there's coming a day, there's coming a day when those arms will close And those who rejected him will be separated from him forever. When death finally dies, when it ceases to exist, it will be too late. God will rule over every square inch of it and it will no longer be a day of grace and mercy. The language of verses 27 and 28, I told you, gets rather confusing. Um, the reason it gets so confusing as you, when you read through it is because it uses personal pronouns there, but it doesn't, doesn't identify exactly who it's talking about. We know it's either, either the Father or the Son. We know it's either God or Christ. But 
it's not always clear who it's referring to. I won't read it through for you, but here's what it means. Here's, what's, here's what Paul's saying in those two verses. When the resurrected Jesus has finally brought every one of God's enemies under his feet, he will lead the millions upon millions who have been conquered by his grace to, into the throne room of God. And it's there that he will turn their attention away from himself as he hands over the kingdom personally to God the Father. And he'll turn the attention of all of these millions who have been saved throughout history to the gaze on the Father. And all of heaven in that moment will erupt with the worship of the only God who is worth our worship. He was behind it all 1 Corinthians 15, 57. As we sang one of our songs this morning, it was one of the verses below the verse that we were singing. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. God the Father who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. The bigger picture of this church is not so that you can come to the Bible and you can say, hmm, what's in here for me? So, so that you can flip to the concordance when you have a particular issue you're dealing with so that you can find maybe a verse that might help you along through that. The point of Christianity is not for you to come to Christianity and say, let me make this thing all about me. And when I come to church, I want everybody to serve me. I want, I want the temperature to be where I want it to be. I want the songs to be to my liking. I don't want to have to park very far away. This is not the point of Christianity. The point of it all is so that God might be all in all. This thing is heading to a place that is going to be altogether glorious as we kneel with millions upon millions of souls throughout history and angels in heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, and we gather around the Father and we worship Him through the Son. Jesus in that moment, just as He has subjected Himself co-equal with God the Father, but he subjects himself and he comes and he carries out the plan of redemption, he will be in heaven with us with a resurrected body throughout all of eternity. We'll be able to touch him. We'll be able to, we'll be able to, to, to look at him. And he with us will worship the Father. And this is the point of Christianity that God may be all in all. One day, one day, Death's going to die. And we will worship our God forever. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I pray, God, that in this time, in this in-between, where we're already saved, those who are in Christ, but we're not yet raised from the dead, we're not yet with you in eternity, and we still live in this world where all of these Effects of sin still continue to happen. God, I pray that now that, that you would be supreme in our lives. God, we thank you for your grace and for drawing us who are believers to yourself. It's not anything in us. There's nothing that we can boast in. It was your work and yours alone. And God, I pray that in this time of responding to your word, God, that you would call people to yourself. That in this room, Lord, I know that in this room there are people sitting in these seats who are right now dead in their sins and trespasses. And that's not a put down from a judgmental preacher. That's a fact of 
your word and the fact that in Adam we all die. But God, in, in this time, Lord, I pray, God, that you would do what you did with me and God, that you would make them alive. And God, that you'd call them out of sin and out of the darkness of the hopelessness of their sin. And God, that you would save them gloriously. Do it for your name's sake. Not for mine, not for this church. Do it for your name's sake. Lord, capture their heart. Use the preaching of your word, God, to capture them. God, do what you want to do, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning we want to give you an opportunity to respond to the word. You've heard the word today. You've you've heard the passage read a couple of times. You've heard me explain the passage. And maybe along the way, it went beyond just me up here talking to you. Maybe at some point along the way, you began to hear God whisper to you. And you sensed him calling you to turn from your sin and trust in him alone. And today I want to invite you as Hannah and the team, as they play and sing, I'm going to be seated right down here on the front. You can come see me. I'd love for you to come and, and just sit down next to me or, or put your hand on my shoulder, whatever the case may be, and, and I'll be glad to talk with you, answer any questions you have. I'll be glad to pray with you, help to lead you to turn from sin and trust Christ. Please come see me today. Maybe you're here today, though, and you're, you're a Christian, you're a believer, but you're just so well aware today of how much you still need the gospel. You're so aware of your own sinfulness and the own, your, your depravity, how you're prone to wander from God. And you've come in here and, and you've not thought about it a long time, but something just feels wrong. You're just distant from God and you, you've sat through worship services and it just felt cold and you were away from him. Today, the Bible says that you can turn from your sin and trust him again. 1 John 1, 9 says that if you'll confess your sin to him, that he'll be faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So today, I want to encourage you as believers to use this time as a time of confession. Confess your sins to him. Turn to him. And then as believers all across this room, as we respond in song, let's sing. Let's, Let's imagine for just a minute. Let's picture the throne room of heaven in that moment where Jesus hands the kingdom over to the Father. And let's respond as we sing. As you leave here today, let that be the the thought that drives you. The resurrection means that we will one day live. And so whatever this world brings to us, it brings. Come what may, but I am secure in my God. And so go and live for the King. Whatever God leads you to this morning, respond by being obedient to Him. Let's worship. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.